Hello, everyone, and welcome to the third edition of the South-South Fellowship Podcast. My name is João Pedro Caleiro, and I am a writer-researcher at the Lehman Foundation Program at the Blavatnik School of Government at the University of Oxford. This podcast will discuss the experience of Pakistan in improving school access and foundational learning through public-private partnerships, commonly referred to as PPPs. Though other provinces in Pakistan also have a lot of experience with PPPs, here we will be focusing on the province of Sindh in the southeast of the country, with a population of about 50 million people. We will also go into detail on one specific project that has been yielding good results there, according to a recent study. But please keep in mind that this material is not to be seen as an endorsement of one initiative or another, but as a starting point for larger themes of conversation for countries in the global south. As a start, it's good to clarify what exactly are we talking about here. There's a long history of public money subsidizing private education, and there are many people who defend that the market has a crucial role in education, though there are many who would disagree. In any case, this relationship between the public and the private spheres in education can take many different forms. Martin Carnoy, a professor at Stanford University, is a major expert in this topic and gave us an overview. Let's hear it. Competitive markets have been relatively effective in generating long-term economic growth and producing goods efficiently to meet consumer demand. In theory, many argue, markets should do the same for education. Market reforms in education are premised on the idea that public education systems run by large bureaucratic organizations and financed by tax revenues will not provide, provide educational services efficiently because they do not face competition from equally subsidized alternative suppliers. Based on this premise, those who propose market reforms argue A, that low quality schooling is primarily the result of supply side constraints imposed by restricting public funding to publicly run schools, and B, that parents' choice and free market competition in local education markets among schools is the most effective form of educational accountability. Thus, the logical solution for improving education is to expand the supply of quality education by subsidizing private schools. That is, to create more efficient alternatives to public schools and to increase public school efficiency through competition among schools. To accomplish that goal, parents should be able to send their children to any school that parents choose, public or private, under equally subsidized financial conditions. Since the spread of public schooling in the 19th century, private education in most countries has existed alongside tax-supported public education to satisfy some groups of education consumers with particular religious or other needs willing to pay privately to satisfy those needs. In 2015, about 20% of all primary schoolers and 29% of secondary schoolers in the world attended private schools. The proportion falls to 16 and 22% if we exclude India. In many countries, this private education is unsubsidized by public monies, but in some private schools, predominantly those run by religious organizations, are subsidized, often by being exempt from taxes and governments paying teachers' salaries. 
This is typical of religious private schools in Europe, for example. In turn, when private education accepts public funding, it is usually subject to regulation by government agencies. One of the most influential critics of public education, Milton Friedman, argued that government is simply not as efficient as private markets in delivering any kind of services, that there were good reasons for publicly funding education, but not for public publicly producing education. Friedman was the first to propose publicly financed school vouchers specifically for expanding the supply of efficient schools and making private schools effective competitors for public schools. Evidence based on various experiences, uh, such as charter schools in the US, vouchers in Chile, and other studies, suggest that market reforms increasing, that is increasing the supply of private alternatives to public education and promoting greater competition among schools may result in small improvements in low-income students' achievement scores and in the overall quality of school systems as measured by average test scores and high school completion. It is not clear, however, whether is market accountability or the add-on of state testing uh, which is a, an important element of output-based public accountability, to market accountability reforms that produces uh, the small achievement gains. More important, proponents of market accountability specifically argue that the education market alone, without the testing, if allowed to function properly, can improve student outcomes significantly. There's no evidence that this is the case, however. In other words, what Carnoy is saying is that sometimes we have private schools which are paid by the parents, but sometimes we also have private schools which are financed by the state. In some cases, the idea for doing this is to create competition in the education market, like Milton Friedman has suggested. But sometimes, the goal is to get the private sector to build and run schools where they don't exist at all, because the public sector has been unable to make that happen. This is the model we want to focus on in this podcast, public-private partnerships, or PPPs, serving underprivileged places. And one of the countries which has had a robust experience with PPPs is Pakistan. For a few decades now, Pakistan has been using this modality to try to address educational challenges, which are many. Even though free universal education is guaranteed by the Pakistan constitution, About a third of its children aged 5 to 16 are not attending school, according to the Pakistan Social and Living Measurement Standards Survey from 2019 to 20. Some of these children have once been in school but then dropped out, but about one in four kids have never even had that opportunity. Add to this some serious issues of equity as well. There is a substantial gender gap in education in Pakistan. According to the Center for Global Development, For every 100 boys enrolled in school, only 86 girls are enrolled. And there are huge inequalities between the regions and between urban and rural areas as well. As part of an effort to improve those numbers quickly and with cost efficiency, the government of Pakistan decided to use PPPs. In the early 1990s, it set up semi-autonomous foundations in each of the country's four provinces and gave them an endowment and a mandate to make interventions and set up projects through different models of working with the private sector. In one of these provinces, Sindh, there is now an extensive portfolio of PPPs, 
usually based on a model of paying a fee per student and attaching financing to the achievement of key performance indicators, or KPIs. This model of outcome-based financial compensation, when working well, creates a strong incentive for the private sector to do its best efforts to improve education. Some of these PPP projects are run through a specific node in the education department, in partnership with big non-governmental organizations and universities. And others run through the foundation we just mentioned, the SIND Education Foundation, SEF. These projects are sometimes managed by individual social entrepreneurs, particularly in rural areas underserved by public education. Mubashir Mirza, the Deputy Director of Program Support and Development at the SIND Education Foundation, explained to us the basic model of partnerships that they have been using. The idea was to basically, again, a similar model, reach out to the uh, far-flung, challenging, and remote area, opening low-cost private schools. These 2 to $3 schools were basically the schools where government was going to pay the fee of the student to the entrepreneur who opens the school, and he could not charge the fee. And then uh, he or she or they, whosoever may be, either they may be individuals or the organizations, may be held accountable in terms of complying to the uh, to the needs of the students uh, and improving their student learning outcomes. So that was also being gauged by a rudimentary initial setup of assessment at the foundation for the students. So the foundation was basically paying a partner the school fee, not allowing him to charge any other fee, and then assessing the students to see whether the students are getting the uh, required or desired learning outcomes. So that was the very, very basic model that the World Bank, along with the SIN government, introduced. Though there is no clear evidence that this model is a panacea for all the problems that Pakistan and other developing countries face, there are promising signs that they are indeed working well, at least in SIND. A recent study published in the Review of Economics and Statistics Journal is one example. The authors evaluated the implementation of 200 schools in the rural part of SIND by local entrepreneurs through a PPP similar in model to what Mubashir just described. To make sure that they could tell exactly if the program was working, they used a randomized control trial, RCT. First, they selected a few villages with very similar characteristics. Then, they only did the program in some of the villages, or in the vocabulary of research, some villages received the treatment. They did not do the program in other villages. Those are what we would call the control villages. The decisions about which villages were or not involved in the program was completely random. As for the program, it paid a subsidy for each student enrolled, which was less than half of the equivalent per student in the public system. There was an extra subsidy for girls, intended as an incentive for the private partners to actively search this population and address the gender gap that we mentioned before. The government also provided school leadership and teacher training, as well as teaching and learning materials. According to the study, this program was highly effective. For example, in the control villages, 47% of the questions were correctly answered by students, but in the treatment villages, this number increased to 66%. Another good sign was that in the treatment villages, Virtually all children who could switched from a government school to a program school. And in the households of these villages, people started having higher aspirations 
that their boys would become doctors and engineers and their girls would become teachers. Though it does not seem that the differentiated subsidy for girls students made a difference at all. What part of the program worked exactly? Well, it is hard to tell. But there are some features which may have been key. The management of these schools, for example, was very decentralized. And though there were contractual obligations defining what should be achieved, these entrepreneurs had a lot of freedom in deciding what inputs they were going to use and who they were going to hire, including the teachers. In program schools, teachers were more likely to be female and younger, which turned out to be something that affects girl students positively. These teachers also had fewer years of teaching experience and received lower salaries, but they spent a similar time engaged in classroom activities as the government school teachers. However, more research is necessary to understand what was special about this experience and what could inform and improve initiatives in Pakistan and other contexts. Dushyan Chaju, a lead economist in the Social Protection and Jobs Global Practice of the Africa region of the World Bank, was one of the authors of the study we just mentioned. He joined us for a conversation and explained the different aspects of the project and what they found out. First, he spoke about the private partners in the project. Who were these local entrepreneurs selected to run the schools? Let's hear his answer. So a lot of these uh, individuals were not in the education business that, that actually applied to be part of the program. Um, they tended to be more educated than the rest of the residents of that particular community. Right? But it's not like they, was, they were college educated. You know, some of them would have completed high school and that's it. Some of them had, had just uh, you know, uh, completed middle school. But in some of these villages, that was pretty much the highest level of schooling that you could, you could have. Uh, they, they were highly motivated. So, you know, they would be interviewed as well. And they were highly motivated to do things. Uh, and um, they, had, they had the connections within, within the community and they could access certain assets. Like they could get a building to run this. Or uh, if they already had a building, they could refurbish it to make sure that it was safe for kids and then they could run it. So they had access to some assets on the ground. Uh, no, and then they, they tended to actually employ their own family members or people with, um, you know, some decent level of schooling to become teachers in their schools. Uh, but, you know, a lot of them, you know, they had to be trained on running a school. They had to be trained on delivering education to, to children. But the foundation actually spent a lot of time working with these entrepreneurs to get them up to speed. And over time, the entrepreneurs... This was, this was a significant source of, of, of income for these entrepreneurs. Uh, some of them were extremely entrepreneurial and they started to set up a network of schools across uh, other communities as well as they were able to build resources through, through this program. As Haju explained, the preconditions in these rural communities in Sin were far from ideal. But with the local knowledge and networks combined with the training, they somehow managed to pull this off. And this is a good sign for different countries in the global south because it shows that starting from a lack of capacity is not necessarily an impediment to doing PPPs. Another relevant aspect is that this was a somewhat small program. And as we have learned from other experiences, including the ones from Kenya with literacy and numeracy programs, scaling up brings its own set of challenges. Capabilities have to be enhanced. Some new stakeholders need to be brought in. 
and some might start feeling threatened. In other words, success sometimes breeds its own failures. Haju explained this further. The scale of the intervention was very, very low at the time that we were involved. And I think scale matters. So if, if, if these schools, let's say, uh, become much more, so by the time I, I think they, they did expand the program quite a bit over time. Uh, and uh, when we were looking at Punjab, where they had significant scale, we met with public school teachers. They weren't really concerned that they were losing kids to the private sector that were involved in the PPP because they still got their salaries and they had less kids to teach, so they were mm-hmm. quite happy proceeding. But if the government reacted to this by saying, look, your children are now moving to private schools, so we're going to cut funding for public schools, so we're going to change accountability, that changes the incentives of the public school system and they could raise a voice. They could say, oh, look what's happening in the private school system. They're not as well-educated as us teachers in the public school system. You need to start providing greater oversight in these private schools. They're running without any of the parameters that we have. And that could then scuttle the entire program. And I knew that there were already antibodies building in Punjab. They're saying we need to relook at the private school regulations there um, in order to tighten them to prevent rotten apples from, uh, from coming into play in the, in the private school system. So that could completely dismantle all of this experimentation if, if, if we went down that road, right? So scale, scale matters. We were able to get away in with because we were operating at a small scale. But I think I think the preconditions uh, aspect, probably not much, and I think we can extrapolate to other countries in the, uh, in the developing world to try this, uh, this type of model. Uh, certainly would be a break from how public school is delivered, and I think it's worth experimenting in other settings. Other than the risks associated with scaling up, Haju highlighted two other important points in our conversation. The first was about the sustainability of the results, or what he calls, quote-unquote, fade-out effects. The study was quite recent, so we simply don't know yet what is going to happen in these schools over a longer period. Another point that Haju made was about broader systemic effects, both positive and negative. The study measured a few aspects of the intervention, but it didn't capture the full picture. This is how he put it. We weren't there long enough to see if if this was sustained uh, over time or whether, you know, there's a whole literature looking at fade-outs, uh, fade-out effects of these various programs. You might pick something up in the first two, three years of an intervention, but you're measuring five, six, seven years down the road and you're not seeing much return. Mm-hmm. Um, and we didn't pick up on general equilibrium effects, right? So, I mean, we changed something in the system. What happened to the entire system? So, what happened in these communities? Did we generate anything that was adverse in these economies? But I think there needs to be a learning agenda that's focused on some of these aspects. We didn't have that. Now that we have a clear understanding of some of the possibilities of PPPs, in the second part of this podcast, we want to challenge you to think if they could be a good idea in the context you are coming from. What types of challenges do you have in your education system? Who are the private partners that could be on board in improving it? The first thing you should have in mind is that you may be looking for the private sector to solve these problems because you have a weak state which has been unable to deliver on providing quality education for all. But you should remember 
that a good PPP requires a strong state as well. The government needs to be able to choose partners based on merit in a transparent process. Then, it must be able to define the criteria of what success looks like. Then, it must monitor constantly, rewarding or correcting the course of private partners according to their results, thus making sure the public and the private incentives are aligned. And it must be able to ultimately withdraw a contract, which is not an easy thing to do. But even the best contract is not able to anticipate every possible event. So for a PPP to succeed, a lot of effort needs to go into fostering dialogue, sustaining a positive relationship, and putting in place accountability mechanisms that are rigorous but can also respond to changing realities on the ground. These points were emphasized to us in a conversation with Haila Shakil, the head of strategic development at the Citizens Foundation, also known as TCF. TCF is a nonprofit organization which operates about 1,800 low-cost private schools in Pakistan, of which about 400 are under public-private partnerships. This is what Rahila had to say about her experience having to navigate disruptive events to education, including COVID-19 and the floods in recent years. What we have been able to do is we have been able to kind of make amendments and and correct the course over time so for example uh, this this mou happened just right before covid so covid has hit us february 22 2020 and the the mou was signed on the 9th of jan 2020 and you can imagine that the first the ta- the, the targets and the work of the first two years what just went down the drain and we went back and kind of renegotiated the targets. Those were approved kind of year-on-year targets. Then just last year, flood hit. And, and you know, um, so um, so these things happen. But if you have the relationship and if you have a, a an accountability mechanism where there is, there is you know, kind of a, um, a, a, with a regular frequency, there is a reporting and there's tracking that helps. Another complicated issue in many contexts may be finding the necessary buy-in from actors in the education system. Many people working in the public sector may wrongly view this as a road towards privatization of education and resist efforts to get PPPs off the ground. If PPPs have different rules towards hiring of teachers, for example, associations may see it as a way of circumventing their own preferences and weakening them. Even in places like Sindh, where PPPs have been well-established for quite some time, there are ongoing problems of this nature. Tassif Latef, Director of the Public-Private Partnership Node in the School Education and Literacy Department in the government of Sindh, spoke to us about this issue. In any country, no matter what you produce, you can produce an excellent document, but if the people are not receptive of it, then it's a, it's a it's a uh, not a win win situation. It's a, it's a bad situation. It's a bad gamble. So so and and you need patience. In PPP, the results cannot come in one day. It's not a magic wand, because people in the public sector have been working for 60, 70 years, especially in our country since its inception, and they have a mindset. The resistances mentioned by Tosif are not limited to the public sector. In fact. The private sector might have its own reasons to take pause before engaging with government. Some organizations, for example, 
might prefer to use their own materials, hire and train their own teachers, and set their own curriculum, even when running a school under a PPP agreement. But for all types of reasons, the government may not be willing to give them these types of freedom, and other actors, such as unions, may also protest. Shazia Kamau, a South South Program Fellow, works as the General Manager of Education Design at the Citizens Foundation, TCF, the large nonprofit we previously mentioned. In our conversation, Shazia mentioned that TCF was initially reticent to engage with government. Over time, however, they came to realize that this was the only way to extend their impact on the educational landscape. Let's hear what she has to say. I think many, many years ago, I would say eight years ago, it was, we were at a stage at TCF where we thought, you know, we don't want to go where the government is, you know, it's too, too difficult, it's hard to crack. Um, it's a piece that is kind of, um, un it was unapproachable for us. But for a country like Pakistan, where, um, you know, for any country, government is the public sector that ought to be uh, providing schooling to um, to its citizens, right? And so you would probably have a situation where 80% of that job is to be done by the government sector and 20% is taken on by the private sector. That's the likely ratio that you would have. In our country, that 80% chunk is either not being done to its capacity or not being done effectively or not being done at all. So here is this private sector entities, a smaller group that is trying to kind of really scramble to make a difference. And you cannot make a difference if you're that small, right? And if you're looking at the numbers, 220 million, 50 lakh kids uh, being born every day, that's not a number that you can catch on unless you make your way into the government and through advocacy, through partnership, through uh, kind of technical assistance, if you know your stuff, right? So, um, you know, that's when we decided that it was time to step in and actually begin to play a role uh, and begin to have public-private partnerships and have conversations around that. And then Martin perhaps muddle our way through or whatever, but do begin to, uh, you know, kind of at least muddle our way through, I would say. Um, so, I mean, to any private entity, I would say, I think it's non-negotiable that you do not interact with the government. I think it is an imperative. Uh, usually these kind of conversations happen in places where there is always there is already a deficit of some sort, either quality or access. And unless and until private sector that, you know, gives some level of quality education does not step up and does not begin to align themselves with the public sector, that deficit is only going to grow. And I think in Pakistan, for instance, there's been a, um, a positive movement towards conversations conversations around access ever since private players have stepped into the landscape for PPPs. Uh, so I would say this is not something to be to feel daunted from. I think you need to jump into it as a private sector that feels responsibility for good quality education for all of its um, to young population. 
Other than these types of internal resistances, mentioned by both Tosiv and Shazia, we should remember that the final goal of PPPs should be increasing learning outcomes. And to understand if that is happening or not, you will need a system of reporting and assessment that is working well. You should ask yourself, who is providing the data on the performance of the students in these schools? In what frequency? Can you get a third party to do that assessment part to ensure that neither the government or the private actors are manipulating it to their own benefit? One concern some people may have with PPPs is that when the private sector is responsible for education, they will be driven by market forces and focus on the low-hanging fruit, forgetting about the most vulnerable in society. That is a fair concern, but PPPs have mechanisms to address them. One good example is the differentiated subsidy in the program we spoke about previously. Because they wanted to get more girls in school, they made sure that the subsidy for girls was higher. In that way, there were incentives for the private actors to find and retain girls in school, which is a great thing. However, the results from the study show that the different subsidy did not make a substantial difference in that case, which goes to show that doing incentives for the purpose of equity is not a trivial matter. Another important thing to think about when considering PPPs is that everybody needs total clarity on their own responsibilities. To allow this to happen, it's essential that these partnerships are based in law and enforceable. SIND did a couple of very extensive and detailed legal acts in this direction, which have helped give security and guidance to whoever wants to join the effort. But many other places may have to start from drafting laws and regulations and getting them through the normal procedures. These PPP contracts must provide clear and enforceable obligations, but at the same time, they cannot become straitjackets or they risk stifling innovation. And innovation is what you want. If there is one truth in the world of PPPs, it's that there is no one-size-fits-all model which will work in all contexts everywhere. Sadaf Anis, a Deputy Managing Director at the Sindh Education Foundation, sums up what she sees as the three most important basic requirements for successful PPPs. You need to have a sound legal framework. That's the first requirement if you want any project to be, uh, every party should know uh, its responsibilities, what it is supposed to do, and whose obligation is what. And then you need to build safeguards uh, into the contract or agreement, whatever you, you are doing. And it has to be flexible. You really cannot have uh, stringent models which do not allow space to evolve because uh, in uh, this, the ground situation is different in different parts of the, even in the same city. So you need to have flexibility built in your into your uh, system. You need to have a sound uh, legal framework which allows uh, you to the space uh, to grow and to experiment. Uh, and then uh, you need to uh, do things on merit. That's very, very important. The selection of uh, the people who, from the private sector who you, you work with, uh, they have to be on merit. And the third thing is that you need to have a system of reviewing on continuous basis. And then in, in inserting or incorporating the lessons learned into your next phases or maybe uh, 
your training and you need to talk to people and you need to understand the ground realities uh, before you implement anything uh, into your program. Interestingly, the points made by Sadaf about understanding the existing frameworks echoes what we heard in the private sector side from Rahila, the head of strategic development at TCF. Rahila also recommended that private partners try to envision how scaling up would look like since the start to avoid difficulties down the road. She also mentioned something curious. Governments usually have a development budget that they find hard to spend. And that's where the private partners can come in by partnering with governments and PPPs and making sure that budget is well spent. Here are Rahila's thoughts on what to consider before doing a PVP and how to get them right. I think um, for someone who wants to enter the PVP, they should have a very good in-depth analysis of their own capacity and strength. This is very, very important. The other thing I think, um, uh, and if I use the context of Pakistan where the, the problem is, is, um, is massive, one should enter PPP with a mindset of scale. And uh, when you do that, then you think differently of the programs and then you assess those partnerships differently also. So, so it's important not just to look at the first five school you're looking at, but look at the 50 and the 500. Uh, because it's, it's difficult to change course once you kind of hit 100 and, and 150 for, for that 500. So, so it's really, really important. Uh, one should also have a very good understanding and you need to create that understanding and meet people in the government or the, the ones who are leading the project of the legal and financial frameworks. Uh, it, it is very important. Most governments, um, provincial governments and other governments, they have, uh, um, they have money. Uh, I think one big experience that we have we have had uh, getting into PPPs is that the in Pakistan particularly, the challenge for the government, provincial governments and federal government uh, is the development part of the budget, not the recurring part of the budget. Uh, because most, the entire budget, 80% of it is going toward recurring costs, salaries and all that. And there's very limited scope they have for creating new schools, upgrading schools and all that. Um, and that's where uh, the public private, uh, the, the private partner can come in. Uh, and, and they would still be kind of, since it's a big, bigger budget of the recurring uh, side, they, they would be able to absorb those costs. Uh, and uh, from, a, from a government perspective, they, they, their cost of creating a school and the processes and all that goes much higher compared to for a private uh, partner. So that's what the private partner can bring to the table and then leverage what the government can, uh, you know, like uh, subsidies. Thank you very much for listening. We hope that you enjoyed this podcast and will come away from it reflecting about some of the challenges and opportunities associated with the use of public-private partnerships to improve learning outcomes in global South countries. Please refer to the discursive learning document about the same theme, which takes some of these issues further. And if you want to learn more about education initiatives in the Global South, don't forget to read our other discursive learning documents and listen to the other podcast episodes. The materials about Kenya, for example, 
speak about the literacy and numeracy programs to Somme and Pride. And we also have two case studies and podcasts focused on Brazil. One of them is about the coalition to establish common curriculum standards. And the other is about efforts to improve foundational learning outcomes in two municipalities, Sobral and Campus. And we hope to hear comments, suggestions, and questions through the email lehman.foundation at bsg.ox.ac.uk. And see you next time. Thank you.